Welcome to For the Earth, a podcast from the Register Guard in Eugene, Oregon. We highlight people who have a cause for the earth in Eugene, Springfield, and other parts of Lane County. In some of the For the Earth episodes so far, we've heard from a teen trying to get people to stop using so many plastic straws, the woman in charge of waste management at Eugene Saturday Market, and a local author who wrote a book about walks in Oregon's ancient forests. This episode is a little different. It is a conversation with Diego Melgo, an assistant professor and earthquake expert at the University of Oregon. The danger of a major earthquake looms for Western Oregon due to the Cascadia subduction zone. Melgo helps us understand what earthquake magnitude is all about, how a huge quake would impact Eugene and Springfield, and what he and other researchers are doing to create early warning systems. My name is Diego Melgar. I'm a geophysics assistant professor at the University of Oregon, and uh, I'm a seismologist. Diego, you're an earthquake expert here at the University of Oregon, and I've come to talk to you about earthquakes. When we talk about earthquakes, we talk about magnitude. But what does that mean? Help me put magnitude in layman's terms. How do I explain magnitude to someone who is not familiar with it? Sure. So magnitude has to do with the physical size of the earthquake. So the best analogy that we can come up with is uh, that of a light bulb. So you can think of something like a small keychain LED light as being a small magnitude event and the floodlights at a stadium uh, being a large magnitude event. So this is to distinguish the physical size of the earthquake from your personal experience during the earthquake, which is what we refer to as intensity. And that has to do with how strongly you feel the shaking. And the intensity of an earthquake is controlled, yes, by the magnitude, but also by other things like are you close, are you far from the earthquake, or are you standing on hard rock or on soft rock? So if, if you think about that little keychain LED light, if I hold it really close to your eye, it can be blindingly bright. That Think of that small earthquake. If you're really, really close to it, the shaking can be quite intense. But if you're looking at a stadium light from kilometers away from a really long distance, those really don't look that bright, even though objectively they're very large lights. The same thing happens with a large magnitude event. If you're thousands of miles away from a magnitude 9, you might not even know that it is there. The magnitude is an objective measure of how big is the earthquake. The Cascadia earthquake might be as large as a magnitude 9. Help me understand how that compares to other quakes, such as a magnitude 6 or a magnitude 8. Right. So one of the important aspects of, of magnitude is that it also tells us about the length of the fault that is going to break and make the earthquake. So one common misconception about earthquakes, and this is because that's how we see them in the news, we see a dot on a map. But earthquakes are really not just one place, one dot on a map. They have a finite extent. The chunk of the Earth's crust that might be breaking might be 100 miles long. It might be 1,000 miles long. And that is directly controlled by the magnitude. So in a magnitude 9 event, we would expect that maybe something like five or 600 miles of fault would break, would move. And the impact of that is that because five or 600 miles of fault are moving, then all the people around those five or 600 miles of fault will feel that very strong shaking. Meanwhile, in a magnitude six, something that we would perhaps expect is very common in California, the size of fault that breaks is maybe only five or six miles, not 500 or 600 miles. So the people that will really feel the strong shaking are just the people next to those five or six miles. So one of the big impacts of large magnitude events is that they will affect 
millions of people, as opposed to something like the more recent Napa earthquake in California a few years ago, maybe one or two or 3,000 people, maybe more, 10 or 20,000 people were very affected by that event. But people in San Francisco or in LA, which is much further away, they didn't even know that an earthquake had occurred. So in the Northwest, when we talk about the magnitude nine, we're talking about an earthquake that people would be affected by the shaking from Eureka in Northern California, clear through to Vancouver Island on the Canadian side of the border. So that's the real impact of magnitude, that it will affect a much, much larger area and many, many more people. What can people living in the Northwest learn from past massive quakes? One challenge for the Pacific Northwest is that our our history of earthquakes is fairly uncertain. We know that large earthquakes have happened, but in the last 300 years, we've had very few significant earthquakes. Maybe the Nisqually earthquake in 2001 might be the, the most recent one. But we can look elsewhere. We can see what has happened in Mexico or in in Japan, which is a very industrialized society, not unlike the U.S. And so what we can learn is how to build better buildings, buildings that are resistant to those strong shaking intensities, or how to build early warning systems like the ones that are being built with a shake alert system here in the Pacific Northwest. So the lessons learned there or gleaned from those societies are immediately applicable to here. And we don't have to go that far across oceans. Even what we've learned from building buildings in California can be brought to the Pacific Northwest. So things like building unreinforced masonry buildings, brick buildings, we know that those perform very poorly during earthquakes, and those are lessons that were learned in in places like California. So we bring that knowledge back and we try to codify that into our building codes so that we make buildings that will withstand the shaking and will remain safe. And again, the same thing goes for earthquake early warning systems. Mexico has had an earthquake early warning system since the late 90s, so has Japan. How? What did they learn? What mistakes did they make and how can we bring that here and build the best warning system that we can build. And we've done that. We've studied uh, all those systems all over the world and those lessons are being brought to bear here in, in, in the Pacific Northwest. So from my conversation with you, Diego, I'm learning that a subduction zone earthquake is going to be much different than an epicenter earthquake, which is what we, a lot of people, myself included, commonly think of when you think of an earthquake. Help me understand the difference between a subduction zone earthquake and an epicenter earthquake. So I, I think that what, what you mean when you say uh, epicenter earthquake, you mean these more common magnitude 4s and 5s and 6s, these smaller magnitude events that people might have been feeling or have felt at some point in their lives. The difference between the big giant subductions or earthquakes in those is one, the area that will be affected by them. The shaking will likely be larger, stronger, more intense in the big subduction zone earthquakes, but it can also be intense in a smaller event if you're very close to it. The other important difference is that the smaller events are far more frequent. That's just the way the earth works. It makes little events very frequently, while the large events are something that happens on the order of every many decades or many centuries. So it is possible that people have felt these small events many times in their lives. They, we get thousands of them throughout the year in, in the continental U.S. The other big impact of subductions on earthquakes, of course, and one that we haven't really talked about is the tsunami. The tsunami is some, it's a force to be reckoned with, and we're talking about 30, 40, 50-foot waves 
waves spanning the length of coastline of the Pacific Northwest and being very, very damaging, not just for loss of life, but for infrastructure as well. And that's something that really doesn't happen in the smaller events. But other than that, the physical processes are the same. You have to break a fault. You have to break a chunk of rock. It just so happens that the subduction zone, you're breaking a very large piece of fault or a very large piece of rock, whereas in the smaller events, is a tiny, tiny fault that's maybe only 100 yards across or something like that. But the physics is the same. The Cascadia subduction zone is off the coast of Oregon. Here in Lane County, that means it's off the coast of Florence. What might a strong magnitude 9 earthquake that's directly off the coast at Florence, what might that mean for Eugene and Springfield? Right. So the the fact that it's offshore helps us a little bit here in Eugene and in Springfield in the sense that people at the coast are probably going to feel it much more strongly because, as we've discussed, if you're close to that big, bright bulb of light that is the earthquake, you're going to feel it more intensely. So people in Yahats or Florence or places like that, they'll feel it more strongly than, than we will here. But even though we're further and maybe in a little bit of a better situation, the shaking here is still going to be very, very intense. And the other thing is that the Willamette Valley is filled with soft sediment. So there's also the added effect that most of the city is not on particularly hard rock. So if you think of it, if you shake uh, a piece of rock or if you shake a bowl of jello, you get very different effects. Um, Now, the Willamette Valley isn't a bowl of jello. It's not that soft, but it is a little bit soft. So the shaking will probably amplify a little bit and and, and go on for longer. And uh, that's what we can expect here in Eugene. Also, it will trigger landslides. So anytime that there's a road going through a little valley or a mountain pass, it's very likely that there will be landslides that might block the roads, and that's going to make access difficult if we need emergency services or supplies or things like that. So the earthquake is just the beginning of what will likely be a crisis that can go on for quite a while, and it can affect also lifelines, pipes, water supplies, and, and things like this. And again, as I've said in, in, the, in your previous question, the, the tsunami is something that, personally, this is something that I research. It worries me a lot because it's going to be quite big and it can be very devastating and unlike shaking for shaking we can prepare quite well if we build buildings the right way we can make them nice and stiff and they'll withstand the shaking and we can do that tsunamis are are, are hard to defend against and hard to protect against so that's something that that we should also be thinking about and preparing for and i know in your profession a lot of people probably ask you to try to imagine say what might happen and there's tons of variables But I'll join the chorus and ask you what might be some of the damage we could see in Eugene and Springfield from a magnitude 9 Cascadia earthquake. Right. So we can look at other places around the world. As you asked me before, we know what earthquake destruction looks like. We know what tsunami destruction looks like because it's happened elsewhere. It's happened in Japan and it's happened in Chile. So what it would look like is some collapsed structures, unfortunately, and hopefully the primary structures, which are schools, firehouses, police stations, and hospitals, those should be up to code and likely not collapsed, but it depends. It's an unstructure-by-structure basis. But unfortunately, with the way that things are right now, some collapses might be inevitable. One thing that we worry about a lot in the post-event time is fire. So when structures are collapsed and there might be gas leaks and things like this, it's very common during big earthquakes to have a fire following the earthquake. If your listeners think back to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, most of the casualties were from the fire, not from the earthquake itself. And that's in the mainland regions. 
And then it depends on how well prepared each city or each county is, how quickly they can bounce back, how quickly power and water are restored, depending on the damages. This can be hours or days, or it could be weeks to months. So we're really looking at something that is going to happen maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in 20 years, but that it will happen one day. And when it does, it can be quite cataclysmic. So it's good that we're thinking about these things now and, and preparing for them such that when they do happen, we bounce back quickly instead of being stuck for months and months and months trying to recover from this uh, very difficult event. You grew up in Mexico where there's been loud earthquakes, magnitude 8 and such. What kind of lessons have you learned from those type of earthquakes in Mexico? I, I think that the number one lesson is that earthquakes are scary things. The whole ground is moving beneath your feet and there's nothing you can do to stop it. But that also knowledge is power and that if we know that the earthquakes can happen, we can do something about it. So in Mexico, there was a very big earthquake in 1985 that killed 20,000 people and it happened and Mexico City was not prepared for it in the sense that it was unexpected. The city didn't think that such a big earthquake was possible. As a result of that, many things changed. Building codes were improved, early warning systems were designed, so that society took that lesson and adapted and grew into something more resilient and something better. And that's an important lesson. Here in the Pacific Northwest, it wasn't until the 90s when it really became clear that we had this big, huge, looming hazard offshore. And what that means is that now with this knowledge, we can change, we can adapt, we can get better, we can make warning systems, we can improve our building codes, and such that when it does happen, its effects will be smaller and will bounce back faster. So I think that's one important lesson from Mexico, that we're not static as a society. We're capable of change. That change might take a while. You know, we might need new laws here and there for certain things, but we are capable of that, and we should be thinking about that all the time. Never be complacent. Never think that your building code's good enough, your early warning system's good enough. We, you can always do better, and we should always be thinking to, about doing better. You mentioned that earthquakes can be scary things. When it comes to individuals who might have anxiety about large earthquakes, yeah. do you have any advice for them? Yeah, of course. There are many resources online. Have an earthquake kit. Have uh, two or three days worth of water, uh, two or three days worth of food, canned goods, some cash or radio, that kind of stuff. Go online. There's a lot of good resources on how to have an earthquake kit ready. I think that for people that are fearful, uh, inform yourselves. There's so much out there that you can read about. Yes, they are scary things, but you can learn about them. And you can learn about resilience in the sense of having that earthquake kit ready to go. If you have a property, you should be thinking into retrofits. You can. There's people that you can ask and resources for you to figure out whether your house is in good shape or maybe not in good shape and you can find help for how to retrofit your house and make it a little safer. Simple things like bolting your water heater to the wall and there's all sorts of things that you can do such that when that scary event happens, it's not as bad as it could be for you. So I would say take that fear and turn it into action instead of paralysis. That would be my recommendation. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Diego. Sure. My pleasure. That conversation was from March 2019 on the UO campus in Eugene. I caught up with Melgal again in September 2019. He gave me some more insight on how Earth scientists at the university study any big earthquake around the globe, and how his most recent research focuses on a tsunami warning system for the West Coast. Here's some more from Diego Melgal, who spoke with me by phone study every large earthquake that happens around the world. When they do happen, we stop whatever it is we're doing and we go and work on them because every single one of them has new information for us about how the earth works. 
Every single large earthquake has its own particular story to tell about how faults work and plate tectonics works and, and all that. So we're very interested when they happen to go and learn about them. There isn't anything that resembles a boring large earthquake or an easy-to-understand large earthquake. They all have a personality and they all have something new to contribute. Definitely. You mentioned that part of your research, you're trying to get together a tsunami warning system that could operate kind of like a hurricane warning. Help me understand what you're working on. Yeah, so what we're after is, well, imagine this scenario, 11 a.m. in the morning, and a strong earthquake is felt all across the Pacific Northwest from you know, Seattle to Northern California. And as soon as the shaking stops, our goal is that within 60 seconds or maybe two minutes after the shaking stops, that NOAA uh, be able to issue a tsunami warning that says the tsunami heights and arrival times are expected to be this or that for every single county and every single beach along the Pacific Northwest. So we work closely with them. NOAA is the agency in in charge of, of issuing the warnings, but we know a lot about large earthquakes and about tsunamis, so we're helping them to build the system that will enable them to provide such warnings right after the earthquake. And how far off do you think you are? I think we're a few years away. NOAA is very deliberate in how they incorporate new technology into their system, and, and that's a good thing. They already can provide some level of warning right after the large events. So what we're doing now is building all this new technology and testing it and testing it and testing it because we want to make sure that it works exactly as advertised. NOAA is, is very committed to making this a reality. So I think within the next few years, we'll start to see this start to come into production at the Tsunami Warning Centers. Fantastic. And thank you for filling me in more about that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to For the Earth. Check out a story on registergo.com about Melgo who grew up in Mexico and lived through the magnitude 8 earthquake that hit Mexico City in 1985. You also find stories based on other For the Earth episodes on the website of the Register Guard.